0: If you have your Bibles, go to chapter 4, book of Revelation. We're going to read uh, verse 1 through 8. Things should get fun here. And so after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surround the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white, had crowns of gold on their uh, crowns crowns of gold on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder in front of the throne. And seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, in front of the throne was there that what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes, in front and in back. Let's just pause there for a second. If I were John, I would be losing it. Come on. If you saw creatures with eyes all over their body, eyes are weird if there's more than two. (laughs) Think of a creature that you like that has more than two eyes. Yeah, okay, point made. Okay, so there's creatures covered in eyes, you are freaking out, okay? Thank you. Goodness, you guys make me feel weird. Okay, and so the first creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. Uh, the, uh, The third had a face like a man. That's weird enough. The creature has a face like a man and covered in eyes. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Uh, Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Amen to that. Okay, now, let's remember what's going on here, the context. Remember that this is being written to Christians who are just now experiencing the, the Roman Empire turn on them. They are beginning to see the first martyrs in church history. They are watching an entire empire, the most powerful force on the earth, is turning on them, and it is now beginning to hunt them down, and they are beginning to be filled with fear. And so chapter 4, the first thing chapter 4 establishes is this, that this God, this is the God Who is in control of everything that was, everything that is, and everything that's what? To come. Just that statement should make so much more sense to you right now. Think about the moment that you've gone through the biggest struggle or crisis of faith or loss or pain when you felt like God was a thousand miles away, and that statement means something in that moment. This is the God who is with you in your past. Who is present in your present and who will be here with you in everything that's about to come. This is not just some lofty heavenly hymn that we're going to sing for eternity. This is pertinent to exactly what they are going through. This is the God who has always been there, who is there, and who will always be with you. Amen? This is why this is the God who is worthy. It's not just it's the God who's worthy because He's 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 big and He's God and He's He's glowing. This is the God who's worthy because of the type of God that He is. Oh, we're just getting started, people. Now, first thing here uh, in chapter four is when we understand the throne room. Understand that uh, here in the throne room, there's all sorts of images. We could be here all day with all the images, which is going on here. But primarily see this: the way that that the Apostle John describes who it is who's on the throne. He's, he's like Jasper, and his hair is white, and, you know, there's all these descriptions. He is going through a list of all of the Old Testament descriptions of Jehovah. He is going through Daniel, he's going through First Kings, uh, through Exodus, he's going through all of the images that the people he's writing to have read. They, they know of these things. Again, these symbols, this language that means something to them. He's saying, the God that you've always known since your childhood, this is the God who's on the throne. This is the God who is still in control. Is it making more sense to us? Now, we've got 24 elders, okay? Um, most scholars agree on this, that what they believe that this is kind of uh, a symbol of is The twelve tribes of Israel, the idea was with the twelve tribes that they would all have a head, a family head. And so the head of that family or that tribe would represent the people before God. And then, of course, we see when Jesus comes on the earth, he sets up his twelve what? Disciples who are symbolic of all of the new people of God that are going to come into his kingdom and his rule. And so what this is a picture of? This is a picture of all of the people of God who are in submission under this new king and lord, Jesus. And so is a, p- a picture of all of the saints being represented in this place, that we have been crowned with this authority and power. We've been brought into this place, into, his, into relationship, and into power, and into victory. But yet it's something that we do because we understand who he is. And again, we have this whole picture of the elders casting down their crowns, and we'll, we'll open up some more of that later. Then you have these four creatures. Who wants to know about the creatures? Creepy. Right. Is there somewhere else in the scriptures that we've seen a very detailed account of all these different types of animals—some with hooves and some without hooves, some who can fly and some don't fly—that reminds you of what? Who built the ark? There you go. Come on, guys. We have to make this fun, or else it's going to freak everybody out. Okay? (laughs) This creature's got eyes all over. We got to not think about the eyes. And so what's going on here with these creatures, you know, we see these four creatures who symbolize all of the created things on the earth. And so we see all of these different categories which the Jews used to understand animals in. And so these creatures represent all of creation. And so in essence, you have have man who is created and who is separated from the rest of creation who is represented. And then you have all of creation in these creatures who is represented. And then you have angels and cherubim who are if you would, they represent all of heaven, everything that's outside of us in our knowledge. And so everything that has ever existed and ever will exist is represented in this room in this moment. They're all here to behold what God is going to do. <clears throat> Fun yet? Now, here's a big thing in all this, okay? Understand that we have to read chapters 4 and 5 hand in hand. You cannot understand 4 or 5 without each other. you got to read them in tandem. Here's why. Um, who read chapters 4 and 5 this week? Anybody? Okay. It w- was it interesting to you the way that they both read the same? He starts out and he describes the same things in order, but something's different. And so in chapter 5, it starts out the same way that 4 does, and so he talks about how he turns and he sees the throne, and he sees who's on it, and he's he's, he's describing in the same order the same exact things, but something has changed in the throne room. There's something different about chapter 5. And so in chapter 4, what's crucial for you to walk away with, if you're taking notes, understand this, chapter 4 is about this idea, that God alone is on the throne. He alone is in control, and He alone is the one to be worshipped. Let me translate this. To people who are going through suffering and loss and sacrifice, people who are questioning who God is, what the Apostle John is saying is this, keep your eyes fixed on God. There's all this going around. There's all this noise and there's lightning and thunder. And there's all these things that are happening everywhere else. But this entire image is to fix you, to fix your gaze and your thoughts on the one who's in the center, the one who all of creation, all of man and all of heaven is looking to. This is the same God from the Old Testament, the same God all the way back to creation. This is that God. and He is still in control. Fix your eyes on God. Amen? Now, here's the good stuff happens. You guys have your Bible. Uh, Chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5, verse 2 through 7. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept And wept, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, "'Do not weep. See the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four creatures and the elders.' The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. Now, first thing here is to notice again that John is writing chapters four and five to be laid on top of each other. It's almost. So, do you guys remember transparencies? When, like, you used to go to church, there'd be someone up here with the machine, with the flashlight, and, like, they'd be, like, changing out the slides so you could sing the words, yeah, amen, that we don't have those anymore, right? And so the person, yeah, okay, exactly. So in school, whenever I was in school, I remember, you know, they had these things, you know, with, like, math, that they would, you know, have, like, a diagram, and so that they'd slip one on there, and you'd see an image, and then they'd slip another on top of it, and they'd show you all the angles, and, right, have you ever seen that? Okay, and so these transparencies were made to be laid on top of each other so so that you can see the differences. Now, these two chapters are written to be laid on top of each other so that you can see what's different between the two images. Now, we still have the throne room, which is, it's a picture of the rule of God, how God is in control, how God directs and leads and he, He governs all of creation. It's, it's a symbol of His power and His will. So we're still here in the throne room, but again, as we look around, some things have changed. What's going on here? We see a scroll. Now, this scroll is symbolic, if you would, of everything, how would you put this? The scroll is, is to be a symbol of what God is going to do, how God is going to make right on everything that has yet to come. Let me say it like this. So if you were John, and you're standing here in this throne room, and you're seeing the power and the authority of this God who's supposed to be in control, who's ruling all creation, would you not say, if you are in control and if you are all-powerful, why then is this happening? So in this case... Here's John, and his hearers are saying, okay, yes, I, I, yes, it's God. Yes, he's in control. But if he's in control, why am I going to be murdered? Why have I just lost my child? Why is there cancer? Why on and on and on? Why is there the slave trade? Why, again, you know, the problem of evil and pain. If you are really in control, then why is the world this way? This is the question that's being raised. And the scroll is the answer to this. The scroll is the symbol of how God is going to take his control, his reign, and he's going to make it happen on the earth. And so the reason that John begins to weep and to cry is if this is the God who's in control, why is he not doing these things here? And Everyone, all of creation, the angels, the creatures, the humans, they all know if we could just open the scroll, if we could just see the plan of God, how is he going to make everything right? And so they're all looking and searching, who's going to open the scroll? Who is it who's able to take the plan of God and put it into the earth? And so what's so amazing in this part, it's my favorite part, and if you're, if you're trying to understand this book, this, this passage is the crucial passage you have to get. And so he's searching, and right? he's crying, he's weeping, and he says, who is it? Who can? And the elder says to him, it's okay. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he can. He's been victorious. Now, with this reference, we have to understand that, you know, this is an Old Testament reference uh, to the Messiah. And so he knows, oh, okay, it's the Messiah. And so he hears this in his ear, and he turns to find the lion. What does he find? The lamb that was slain. You have to get this to get the rest of the book. You will get the entire book wrong if you believe that the way God makes things right is as the lion. You will misinterpret the entire book. You will get everything wrong if you miss this key. The lion has victory, but how? And so he looks to find the lion, and he finds the slain lamb. And only this lamb is worthy. What's interesting about this book, I was always taught about this. I was always taught that we have to understand that the lion of Judah is, is, the, way, is, is, is the other face of Jesus. Jesus. And he's the lamb and the lion. And you have to understand that, you know, yes, as on the cross, he was the lamb. But he comes back, he's the lion, baby. He's got the swords, and he's going to take them all out. That's how I was. I mean, it sounded great. I was like, I want to see the movie. I mean, that sounds terrific. You know, the Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, I don't know, you know. Sounds terrific. (laughs) Yeah. Everyone's like, oh, come on. And so here he is searching, and he's looking, where is the lion? Where is that symbol of power and strength and victory and triumph? Where is the symbol? And he sees the lamb. Now, this has played out through the entire scriptures. Where's the king? Where's Saul? Where is he? Oh, David, hey, hey. All right, Jesus, where's your armies? Where's your swords? Where's your centurions? Where are they? Oh, wait, He's dead. He's on the cross. He's bleeding. doesn't make any sense whatsoever. This should not seem shocking. This directly connects to everything that you've read through the entire Scriptures. If you guys have your Bibles, let's go to uh, Colossians 2, verse 15. Colossians 2.15. One of my favorite verses here. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I remember I used to read this verse, and, you know, for some reason I used to just kind of have a different image. And then the first time I read this verse kind of honestly, I sat there and said, I don't know how many people actually saw God on the cross, defeating his enemies, victorious. Are you not entertained, right? I mean, come on, right? I mean, I mean, like, who saw that? No one saw that. When Jesus is being killed by his enemies, when he is stripped naked and beaten and he can hardly breathe, he doesn't look strong or mighty or victorious. He looks defeated. And the entire world thinks that too. His own disciples think that as well. They don't go home like, yes, we won. Chanting victory chants. I don't even know what you chant. I don't don't even know. Holy, 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 I guess. I don't know. They they go home brokenhearted, confused, lost. Because what they saw on the cross was not victory. What they saw on the cross was not a God who's strong enough to defeat the Romans or death. What they saw was a God who lost. What they saw was a man who lied. What they saw was that they are now alone again. And what's so amazing about this whole, this whole book is that we continually fall into the same thing. It's hard for every one of us to see Jesus and what he did as victory. It's impossible. It's impossible. It feels like this struggle that that we just can't win. It's so hard when we're struggling with real sickness or death or loss. When someone we love dies, it's it's, it's almost impossible to say, oh yeah, Jesus was victorious over death. And this person I love has just passed away. But this is the place that the Apostle John is taking us to. Uh, In the first week I shared that In this book, you have to be very careful because it shifts back and forth between the perspective of heaven and then the way earth sees it, the way heaven sees it, the way earth sees it. And right now, we're getting a glimpse of how heaven saw the cross. Chapter 5 is basically the cross played out. You are getting to see from heaven's view what heaven saw the cross as. Heaven sees the cross as the Lion of Judah. Heaven sees the cross as the Messiah who's victorious, who has power and victory over all his enemies, who crushed his enemies. That's how heaven sees the cross. But how earth sees it is weakness. Failure. We've never seen a king or a kingdom or a hero win by sacrificing his own life and not taking another. We have no concept of this kind of power. And so to us, the cross is weakness. But to heaven, this was the moment that all creation had been waiting for. And so what goes in here is you're seeing the Old Testament symbol of of what the entire people of God believed that the Messiah was going to look like. Here comes the lion. He's from the shoot of David. He's going to be this warrior king who will lead us out. And so here's John, and he's looking for that same Messiah again. And all he can find is the slain lamb. And what's so powerful about this image is as you go through the book of Revelation, you will find Jesus in one image. The slain land image will not change from this point in the book to the end. When you realize that this is the slain lamb, you will not be able to find the lion in the rest of the book. When this, when this Jesus is crusading with his armies and he's bleeding, and you say, but the lion of Judah wasn't bleeding, but someone else was. Whose blood is it? It's amazing because still at this moment, many of us are going to have a hard time with this because we just can't picture how can God make the world right without coming the way that every other king, the way that every other thing we've ever seen, we have to defeat bad guys this way. 1 Corinthians first chapter, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What power do you see at the cross? Again, nothing. We can sing songs all day long and hear sermons, but if we're being honest when we look at someone who is breathless, who is lifeless, dead on the cross, there's nothing to us and to our earthly minds that sees power in that. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Just stop. I mean, like, get it. Let it sink into your head. We still see what he did as foolishness. Part of the the volume and the reason that the worship is so powerful and moving in this book is because in heaven they are seeing what God has done. He hasn't only defeated his enemies. He hasn't only freed them from death. He hasn't always brought back his, his sons and daughters. He hasn't only redeemed the whole world. But it's how he does it. He does it in a way that's unlike anyone ever. Because the entire world will still see this as weakness, foolishness. It's a well-known pastor, and I won't name his name, but he was doing a series on this book probably about three years ago. He was talking about how he could never serve a hippie, tree-loving Jesus the way that he heard people teach this. The idea that the slain lamb would be able to conquer the world, he could never follow that God. He was so glad that he had a God who was like an MMA fighter. Who, yeah, you might have killed me, but I'm coming back for vengeance. I'll be back. The wisdom, he says, he will destroy the wisdom of this world. He will confound the intelligent. Though his ways will be so contrary to the ways of this world that, that the smartest and brightest among us will be put to shame because we could not even see it. We couldn't even see the power of the cross because of the way that we understand what power is. For since, in the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him. God was pleased the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe Jews demand signs just pause right there it's not only Jews charismatics demand signs and wonders amen And the Greeks look for wisdom those academics who go to seminary they demand it to make sense But, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews. Foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ. Here's the line, if you're taking notes, underline this. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. What do you see on the cross? The weakness of God is stronger than any human strength. This is what you're seeing. It's not that God couldn't evaporate you or set you on fire or come down and, you know, chop you down or shoot you with a gun, whatever, I mean, whatever. Yes, He could do those things, right? But His weakness is more powerful than our strength. Even in His minute choice to lay down... the power that we seek, and to come in the weakest form he could find. Even this is the most clear image of what power truly is. Now, that line there, it said, Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. On this lamb, he has seven horns. And of course, you know, all the sevens Completion is the ultimate theme of this book again. So, so with seven, the meaning of completion, meaning this entire book is how is God going to wrap it up? How is God going to make good in all his promises? How is God going to finally connect all the dots? How is he going to finally do all these things and, and, and defeat death and, and sin and pain and, and hurt? And how is he going to finally make everything right? So this, this number seven, completion. And so the first thing we see in the Lamb, he has seven horns. Horns are a, a symbol of power, because Christ is the power of God, and eyes were always a symbol of understanding, of insight, of wisdom. Christ is the power of God, meaning… I'm digging all this… In in the seven horns, Christ is the fullness, the completion. He is the ultimate image of the power of God. Seven eyeballs. And He is the ultimate image of the what? Wisdom of God. It's not just the ability to do it, but how He's going to do it. Seven, the completion, the wholeness, the image of the power of God and the wisdom of God is Christ. Christ. The problem is, if we try to make the lamb, into the, if we try to make him into the lion, we don't have anything to look at in Jesus' actual earthly ministry. It would have made a lot more sense if, if he wanted us to see him as this lamb, as this lion that comes back with an army, then he should have resurrected and come back with a sword or something and punch somebody, kick someone, you know, pal driver or something. He shouldn't have come back and ate fish, you know? I mean, if he wanted us to connect to the line, he should have come back and said, okay, look, yes, I went as the lamb, but I'm coming back as the lion. And look, here we go. We're going to start training and lifting weights, push-ups, boys. Of course, he doesn't. He tells them to wait because the Spirit of God is going throughout the earth. And, of course, the image of the seven spirits, what God is doing in this lamb has now been released Through the seven spirits of God, which is the symbol of the completion. The spirit is going on the earth to complete it. The spirit is going from heaven to fill the earth, to bring about what Jesus started. When Jesus dies on the cross, he opens the scroll. The plan of God to make everything right has now started. It's moving. And the spirit of God is going to the earth to make the plans happen. And everyone sees this and they respond in worship. This should be exciting. Now, uh, one of the last things in there is, see the verse about this, this idea where there is this bowl, and it contains the prayers of the saints. I've heard this taught on a few times, but the one part that was always missed was what, what follows. And, and so here they are, the angels, and, and they're holding this bowl that is symbolic of all the prayers of the saints. And understand, again, because we see the 24 elders, it's not just prayers of Christians. This goes all the way back to the people of God, all of Israel, all of the, the, the tears and the fear and the, the cries for God to come and to free them and to protect them, to, to bring their the child back, to, you know, all the things that you can imagine losing. This is, it's all in this symbol. All of the, the expectation, the, the, the angst. All of the years, the people of God not understanding what God is doing. If you're really in control, then why this? It's all here. But the moment that the seal is broken, the moment that the Lamb is slain, all of a sudden they sing a new song. And in this new song, this new song is started because in Jesus, in the ability of Jesus sacrifice himself, the scroll is open. God is now going to answer. A new song is now started because now it's not about the expectation anymore. Now we finally get to see how God is going to answer every prayer, going to make good on every promise and going to fulfill everything that we are waiting for him to fulfill. And the lamb that was slain This is the heart of the entire book of Revelation. It might not be as fun. We might not get to play as many uh, games with dates, you know, trying to figure out who the Antichrist is and who it's not and when he comes back and all these different things. But the one thing that this should do to you is you should allow this image, allow it to pull you in to where you begin to taste and feel the excitement, the expectation of all creation, everything, all, all the creatures, all the angels, all of humanity is waiting because it's breaking out. It's it's going, it's it's coming, it's moving. God is finally going to make all things right. Wish you're more of a vocal church sometimes. Most time I'm good with us being quiet. I promise. But this is something, if you're taking notes, here's here's something for you. And so what we're about to see is we're about to get in to everything that God, how is God going to make it right? Meaning we understand the way. We understand through this lamb who was slain. We understand the way God is going to make things right. But now we're about to go into horsemen and judgments, and we're about to see the details of things being worked out. And what's going on in this is, is, is this. Prior to opening up, if you would, understanding how these enemies are defeated and how it's going to work out, the first thing the Apostle John is making sure that we get is this. It's important that we know that it is now the Lamb that was slain who is leading this plan of God. When we talk about wrath and judgment, The wrath of God is going to be poured out on the earth. There will be judgment. But now you get to see who it is who is responsible for this process. The person who's going to be walking out, the one who's going to be carrying the judgments of God, is not going to be the God that they saw from the Old Testament. It's not going to be the line of Judah. The God who is going to carry out the judgments is going to be the Lamb that was slain. Here's what the heart is. You can trust him. It should be the opposite reaction. When you you used to read the book and you see a God of lightning and thunder and he's emerald and he's glowing and he just looks so unfamiliar and foreign and it's the God that he's just lying in Judah and he's angry and he's ticked off and he's MMA God, he's gonna come and all that. You should be quaking in your boots. But if you are someone who has already embraced the cross, you know that the God who's coming back is the same God who died and bled for you. This is the God that's coming back. This God, yes, there's judgment. Guess what? This is the one that we get to trust. We can relax and trust because He is the one who's in control of these things.